Good morning. Good to see. Good to see everybody uh, today, and um, I hope you are doing well. Um, it is a pleasure to uh, be with you. Um, if I don't know you yet, my name's Rollin, I'm the lead pastor here, and um, I am so privileged to share the Word of God with you today. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do is um, what we're uh, we're going through our series, which is actually called the Good News According. Yep. Is hello, hello, hello. Luke's my main man. Okay. <laughs> Luke. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Luke is <clears throat> Luke is actually um, the third of the uh, Synoptic Gospels. Um, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And funny enough, as we're going into this Lenten season, um, Luke was actually um, an, an, an integral part of the development of the church life and the early church because as the faith that we have is a summation and a continuation of uh, the Jewish foundations that we have in the Old Testament, what we see is that all of many of the earliest Christians were Jewish because they were ultimately receiving Jesus as their Jewish Messiah. And ultimately, what um, Matthew, Mark, and also John were, where they were Jewish authors testifying about the coming Christ, the Christ who had arrived and had come to be the Redeemer, the Redeemer and the Savior of the world. But in Luke, what we see is that not only was Jesus going to be the Savior of the Jews, he came first to the Jewish population, but Jesus, being Jewish himself, also said, I'm going to be a light for the Gentiles, and that means everybody else, right? And so Jesus came to be the Savior, literally, of the entire world, and Luke was actually the author of not only the Gospel of Luke, but he was also the author of the Book of Acts, which was the, one of the earliest histories that we have of the church. And he's one of the only Gentile authors that we have in the New Testament. And so what we're going to um, do is we're going to continue our series, which is the good news according to Luke, but do it with the frame of mind of the Lenten season. Um, the Lenten season, as we're really uh, looking forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and celebrating that um, with Easter, what we do in the church calendar every year is we have a moment where we have self-reflection, right? And we're asking God to minister to us and to reveal in our hearts the ways that we've loved him well, the ways that we've strayed, right? Again, as the uh, famous hymn goes, you know, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the one I love. Um, but in the Lenten season, we have the opportunity to come back and say, God, I want you to be my all in all. God, I want your authority to be the one that governs my life and to be the one that shapes me for your kingdom and your purposes. And so um, as we go into Luke chapter 20, um, <clears throat> 20 um, today, we're going to look at this in this manner, that the focus statement is this, the challenge of our days will be to submit to the authority of the invisible God who breaks us in our sin only to rebuild us through repentance in his glorious image, that of Jesus Christ. That God himself in his kindness breaks us so that he can rebuild us in his image. And isn't that good news? 
he breaks us so he can rebuild us in his image. And it's not just a one-time thing. If you've been walking with God for any period of time, as that hymn says, it's, it's easy to have fire for God in a moment and then wander and then need to come back and be broken again, right? If you've played sports, you know a little bit about uh, the breaking of bones and the need to reset bones. A few bones that needed to be reset over the years. My shoulder's bothering me today, but I, I'm, I'm able to use it, okay? Because it was reset, right, um, over the course of time. And this Lenten season gives us the opportunity to do that. So we're going to talk about this today in three parts. We're going to talk about God the architect, God the builder, and God the restorer. God the architect, God the builder, and God the restorer of our lives. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today, and we thank you that you've given it to us, that we might continue to walk with you all of our days. Father, we thank you that it's not just a seasonal thing, but God, you have us grow in our love for you, moment by moment, season by season, year after year, that God, you want to increase in us and allow us to decrease that we might truly be free. God, we pray that you would help us to do that by your word and your authority today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's start by talking about God the architect. What we want to say is that Christ is the great architect of our lives who lays good plans by the authority of his word. He ultimately lays good plans for your life. God is good, and he's got good plans for your life if you would, in fact, obey his word. And what we mean by his word is primarily, number one, his written word, and then secondly, his spoken word to you because God's alive and he speaks to his people today, right? So he has direction for his people primarily in his written word and then secondly in his written word. But at the time that uh, Jesus was ministering, we see that Jesus wasn't part of the Jewish establishment. He was um, a young Jewish um, man. He was about 30 years old when he began his earthly ministry, but it said that he wasn't necessarily from the line of the priests, nor was he one of the scribes. And so by the time you come to this point in the Gospel of Luke, he's right before we're going to pick up today, he's going into the temple. He's going into the temple in his final week before he goes to the cross, and he's overthrowing money changers and those who are selling different set, um, things for sacrifice in the temple. How many people remember that story, right? Okay, he's taking, braiding the whip, taking, whoosh, you know, and so in a premeditated manner, he says, listen, my house was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers, right? You've just found a way to make this a business where you're buying and selling things. And he says, you've lost the heart of what I'm actually about here. And so whenever Jesus does this, there was an establishment, there was an establishment, a religious establishment at the time that took offense to his activities and they're responding to him by questioning his authority. They're questioning his authority for doing these things. And this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 20. It says, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, and here he's referring not to John, one of the 12 apostles, but John the Baptist, okay? Remember, the pre, um, forerunner of Jesus. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And it's interesting because here it's obvious that Jesus knows that the baptism that John was preaching was a baptism of repentance, right? Turning the people who had a cursory knowledge of God to a life of devotion in God. And he was turning them to repentance and faith in the Messiah who was coming, who was Jesus himself. But the people were saying, who, who is it supposed to be? Who, who, why are you obeying this commandment? And he says, he, Jesus was ultimately saying, listen, this commandment that John gave to get baptized was something that all of us should have working in our hearts, a, a heart for repentance, a heart to um, continually be made right before God. But the Jewish leaders were not willing to admit it because ultimately they wanted to keep their station and their place, right? That ultimately they wanted to keep the place, not only their place, but the ability that they had to govern the way that they always had. But what we know is that when God comes into our lives, he's ultimately a good disruptor, right? A good and a gracious and a disruptive king. And he says, you might have done what's good in your eyes up to this point, but Proverbs clearly says that all a man's ways may seem right in his own eyes, but in the end, it leads to death. Has anybody come to grips with that before? doing for years what was right in your own eyes or even what society told you was right or the way that you should live, but ultimately it was leading you to death. When you looked at the product of your relationships, when you looked at your mental state, when you looked at your emotional state, when you looked at your family, all, of this, all of the things that everyone told you, this is how you live life, you thought it was right in your own eyes, but it led to death. And what Jesus came to do was to bring clarity to the things that actually lead to death, disrupt us, and put us back on the path that he actually has for us to be created in his image according to his ways. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't interested in this, and so they said, you know what, we're not going to admit it. We're not going to admit it. Though, though Jesus is here challenging the way that I've always done things, I'm not okay with admitting that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from God leading me to do things differently than I've always done them because that'll, it, that will necessitate change on my part. And so they were like, hey, listen, I, we, we don't know who. We don't know where this baptism came from, whether it was from God or from man. We don't know, right? And how often do we do the same thing? Whenever we're confronted with the word of God or the ways of God in our lives that challenge the way we've always done things, we're like, well, I don't know if this is really God. Anybody ever said something like that before when you've been challenged with something in the word of God? Somebody clearly presents something to you from the word of God that says, hey, maybe you need to change how you're spending your time. Maybe you need to change how you're, you know, dealing with your resources. Maybe you need to change how you're relating with the opposite sex or that relationship that you're in. And then you're like, well, I don't know if this is from God or not. I don't know if this is from God or not. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And what did Jesus say to them? Then, hey, fine. You know, if that's your heart posture, then neither am I going to tell you from where this authority comes from, right? Because eventually he'll let us do what we want to do. And it's like Burger King, he will let you have it your way, baby. <laughs> you know, 
if you do not want to submit to his authority while reaping the consequences of it. While reaping the consequences of it. And the truth is, is you cannot have it both ways. Either Christ is God and you are not, or you are a, I made up a word, self-autonomous. I know it's redundant, but I want to get the point across. Obviously, we could say autonomous or you could say self-reliant. But the point is, I'm saying self-autonomous, right? Extra, extra self, okay? Either you're autonomous and God is not in charge of your life. The point is, is that the end of this passage, meaning the end of the Luke 20 passage, makes it clear that in the judgment we will see that there was only one true king to whom we must give it account. And you will always wrestle with the extent of Christ's authority in your life when, at heart, you want to be your own God. You will always find reasons to question the word of God. You will always find reasons to question, you know what I mean, people's input in your life, even when they come to you with the word of God and in God's name, if you ultimately want to be in charge of your own life. And out of heart of hearts, that's what we want, right? We don't want anyone, and we, we don't want to say it, but it's true, we don't want even God telling us what to do. But he says there is no middle ground here. Either he's God and he is actually the authority in your life, or he's not. And we've got to learn how to walk it out in practical ways. We do not do what he says because, here's the reality, we don't often enough read what he says to do. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands, right? But he says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, that's the one who loves me. But so often we claim ignorance to what God actually said to do because we don't read what he actually said to do. We just don't read our Bibles. But God's word is there as an instruction manual saying, here is my authority. It's invested in these pages. I want to give it to you so that you might know not only who I am, but what it means to love me and follow me. But if you don't take the time to actually read what's in there, then you can't say that you're actually living under his authority because you won't know what he's actually saying to submit to in the first place, right? That is the reality. We have got to be, as Christians, people of the word. Hello. We cannot be a community that is biblically illiterate. We have got to be people who desire God's word, as Job says, more than our daily bread. And lordship means there is no picking and choosing what you will and won't obey, won't obey. To do this and think that you have the pleasure of God is deception. It is literally the great delusion of our day. But what we can trust in is that God is wise and his word is eternal. His character does not need to evolve with the times or become more enlightened. Can everybody say amen to that? He said his word is eternal. His wisdom applies to all generations. As the creator, he knows how it best functions for all time. And I love, uh, I've been rereading a book um, called Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God, okay, by a man named Paul Copin. And I love how he said it. He said, in the words of human rights scholar Max Stackhouse, 
intellectual honesty demands recognition of the fact that what passes as secular Western principles of basic human rights developed nowhere else than out of the key strands of the biblically rooted religion. So even the things that people are ascribing to as we don't need this antiquated book. We don't need this antiquated text, right? All of the things that we're claiming in our society are beneficial actually have their roots in that book. And it comes from his authority that was established in society to leaven it and transform it. And what we need to do is come back to it and esteem it if it's actually going to be the life that God has for us. When we follow sociological, physiological, and psychological trends to their utmost conclusion, we find that God's ways were always right for all time. And learning the scripture, and this is the thing, when, and I'm appealing to people who both have a history in God and those who are just trying to figure things out, seeking God and trying to navigate through what does this Bible mean and how am I supposed to apply it? Learning the scripture and understanding all that the Old Testament foreshadowed that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ gives us both God's ways and his wisdom personified. It gives us both God's ways and his wisdom personified in the person of Jesus Christ. So many um, theologians have actually said that Jesus is perfect theology. When you look at him and you look at what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live, you can look at this man and say, this is it. This is the sum total. And if I follow his authority, I'm going to walk with God. It shows us how to live, not just in some, but quite frankly, in every area of life. In every area of life. And it's because God is the builder. Number two, God is the builder. And Jesus is the builder of truly hashtag blessed lives. <laughs> okay? If you want to hashtag blessed life, <laughs> go to Jesus, who is the ultimate builder of it. And he continues in Luke 20, in verse 9. It says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. You see, when God invests his word in our lives, he wants some fruit from it, right? First, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but then also the fruit of faith and obedience that walks out that which he said to do. And he's coming looking for fruit in our lives so that we might not just be hearers of his word, but also practitioners, those who do what he said. But how about this? He sends people to look for the fruit, but it says that their response to them was initially to do what? Yeah, not just reject them, but beat them. But beat them. Anybody ever been challenged by somebody before and your response to them, even though you knew it was right, you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a pleasant reaction to the one who God himself had sent to you. It might be a spouse. It might be a friend. It might be a community group leader. It might be a donkey, according to Scripture. <laughs> right? But what you wanted to do was beat the one who was actually trying to lead you back to the Word of God. Anybody? Come on. I have been guilty of this. I have been guilty of this, and I always have to, it's almost like I get to the edge of the ledge and got to be talked down. 
I was on the way to uh, lunch with Chris this past week, and I was like, listen, Chris, on the way over, I was on the phone with my wife apologizing for last night. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I'm just make, keeping it in the light. I was like, baby, I blew it. <laughs> I'm sorry. But you know how I responded when she challenged me <laughs> in the moment? I was like, woman! <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Put in my heart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did not respond well, defending myself, leaving agitated, right? My bad, baby. <laughs> right? I've apologized. We're good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But at first, my response was, hey, get out of here with this truth. Get out of here with this that's calling me to greater righteousness or love for God. And that's our, that's our nature in general, right? If we're honest with ourselves. This is what Jesus is talking about. They beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. God is so merciful, Right? This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Referencing the same type of vocabulary he was talking about Jesus at the baptism, right? The baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Then we got it all, right? We get to have our cake and eat it too. We get to call ourselves spiritual and do whatever we want at the same time because at least we're calling on the name of Jesus, but still we are our own authority. We are do what we want, when we want, how we want, but we'll call ourselves Christian. We'll call ourselves spiritual. Let's kill the air get his influence, and anyone else who would speak on his behalf out of our lives, and then the vineyard's ours. But he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. God loves us. We're his chosen people. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is... That is, um, what it, then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone, everybody please say this with me, everyone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's everybody. So Jesus is giving two choices, and both involve breaking. You see that? He says, everyone is going to have to come to grips with him. And he says, everyone who falls on this stone will be shattered to pieces. So that when we actually come to Jesus, guess what? He breaks up our broken lives. He says, uh-uh, because of the sin in your life, I've got to deal with some things. I've got to address some things by my word. And I'm going to shatter you to pieces only in my love and kindness to rebuild you in my image. But if you reject me, if you resist me, you will still face me in judgment. And the only other option is crushing. It's either breaking or crushing. I want the breaking. Anybody else? I want the breaking so that I can be shattered and rebuilt in his image. And what we need to see is that we all have some measure of poor foundations 
in our lives that need to be torn down so that we might be rebuilt for God's glory. How many people can say amen to that? Okay, look at this image. How many people remember this, this show? Okay, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And this is a little play on the image. We all have things that need to be worked on in our lives, right? Some of you might remember Ty. Anybody remember Ty? I like Ty. He was energetic. I was like, listen, that man puts me to shame. I'm like, listen, this is great. You know what I mean? But listen, we all need an extreme makeover in our lives, and this is God's heart towards us. Changing lives one house at a time. Changing lives one house at a time. That's the essence of discipleship, is it not? Not just we would just believe the right things, but we actually have somebody and people invested in our lives that teach us not just what to believe, but how to obey. How to obey that which Jesus, the great authority, has commanded us. Changing lives one life at a time. And can we give it up in here for all of our community group leaders who are continually sharing the word of God. Can you give it up for Miss Sarah Baker, our campus minister? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Our pastor, Cole Parlier. All of the people, all of our, can we say thank you to all of our volunteers? Week after week, day after day, laying new foundations in people's lives so that they can be broken in a safe place and then rebuilt, rebuilt according to the glory of God. And God's redemptive work in our lives will break us or his judgment in response to our unmitigated rebellion will ultimately crush us. But when God breaks us, he rebuilds us through repentance and faith. That's foundational, right? The Lenten season, all about repentance and faith. I'm changing my mind, going in a different direction, allowing God to deal with me again and saying, God, I'm putting my trust. I'm entrusting myself to you. Paul Copen went on to say, pride, we know, is what we have to deal with in this process, Right? And quite frankly, pride is a, is a shackle on our souls. Pride, whether we realize it or not, admit it or not, is a thing that sucks life from us. It binds us up rather than actually empowering or freeing us. And this is what he says, that pride, we know, is an inflated view of ourselves. A false advertising campaign promoting ourselves because we suspect that others won't accept who we really are. Pride is actually a lie about our own identity or achievements. To be proud is to live in a world propped up with falsehoods about ourselves, taking credit where credit isn't due. And the very thing that God comes to address is that pride. And says, for me to break you, I've got to have humility. Stop telling your friends, family members, your coworkers, the world around who you are, think you are. Allow God to show you where you are, and that's okay when he does, because in his kindness, he's a good father to gently lead us to where we need to be. 
but we need to stop putting up fronts and facades and admit where we are so that God can meet us there. Amen? The question is, what areas of your life do you need to humbly allow God to tear down that he might rebuild it in the power, freedom, and joy of Christ? What areas of your life does he need to tear down? Even if you've been doing it for years and thought, you know what, I've been a Christian, call myself a Christian, and it's okay. I've gotten away with it up to this point. Right? But God's like, "Uh uh-uh. I love you. Not okay. Here's some practical examples of of obedience. Jesus went on to talk. We're just reading through the scripture. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, (laughs) on Jesus, and not to pray for him, okay? To lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who um, pretended to be sincere. And may we not be those people. Pretending to be sincere. Pretending to be sincere, but having a heart very far from God. They were trying to catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're asking, should I pay taxes, right? April 15th is around the corner. Should I pay taxes? (laughs) Okay. And Jesus says, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, meaning Christians pay your taxes. Is that okay to say? Do we like it? No, but he said to do it. <laughs> okay? So Christians pay your taxes. And then he says, and render to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So what is he talking about here? On the picture, like, just like our quarters, right? You have George Washington on the uh, like quarter, right? His image on the quarter. The denarius had Caesar's picture on it. Now here's the beautiful thing. He says, render to what God what is God's. You know why you have value in this world? Because you are an image bearer of God. Because you are an image bearer of God. And God has placed his image on every man, woman, and child. Though, at this point, unredeemed many may be. And he says this, just like you're going to pay taxes to Caesar, give your life to God. You are his image bearer, and your life belongs to him. Does that make sense? This is what God is calling us to do. I put my image on you. Now give it to me, your life, and all parts of it. Because the pathway to true blessing is in faith, in, and obedience to God's word. Number three, final part, the restore. Ultimately, through his death at the cross, burial, and resurrection from the dead, Jesus works to restore broken lives. And Jesus deals with the real issues in society by dealing with the real problem. Sin in the heart of every man, woman, and child. For all the issues that we hear about in the news and talk about, you know, historically or sociologically, right? 
the real issue at the heart of hearts is sin in our hearts. Sin in our lives, and Jesus came to deal with that. When I'm out on the streets, this is actually was also helpful to me when I was reading Paul Copen's book. Um, people are always talking about the history and the black eyes of the church, right? The ways that the church has misrepresented Jesus and his authority, trying to use that as a reason for not serving him today, right? And I love this quote where he um, actually said, you've probably heard the complaint Jesus never said anything about the wrongness of slavery. I hear this all the time when I'm ministering on the streets. Not so. Jesus explicitly opposed every form of oppression. Citing Isaiah 61.1, Jesus clearly described his mission to proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed. This then would mean Rome's oppression and its institutionalizing slavery. Now, Jesus didn't create an economic reform plan for Israel, but he addressed life in the ancient Near East and in Israel heart attitudes of greed, envy, contentment, and generosity to undermine oppressive economic social structures. Likewise, New Testament writers often address the underlying attitudes regarding slavery. How? By commanding Christian masters to call their slaves brother or sister, and to show them compassion, justice, and patience. No longer did being a master mean privilege and status, but rather responsibility and service. By doing so, the worm was already in the wood for altering the social structures. You see what he's saying there? Jesus is saying literally through his life, miracles, death, burial, and resurrection, through the gospel. Jesus is making wrong things right in society as we know it. And the answer is not just another program. It is the gospel and the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ that changes men's and women's hearts that they might actually be remade in the image of the creator who wants nothing but good for his creation. It's only through the cross of Jesus that we find forgiveness for our sins and power through the resurrection life of God to live in the pure image of our creator. For the sake of time, I won't go through this last portion where Jesus starts talking about marriage at the resurrection, right? They come trying to trap him in his words. They're like, okay, there's this um, guy. He had a wife. He died. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have any kids. Then his brother came and married her so that, you know, he could take care of her and not like, leave her to herself. But it happened multiple times. Whose wife is she going to be at the end of the resurrection? They were saying this only to prove there was no resurrection. Go ahead and read it later. Okay, but the point is, <laughs> the point is, he's saying, listen, God's goodness right? He said, you, you're an error. In Matthew, he said this, you're an error because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And ultimately, the good that you want for society is found in the creator, which you're dismissing right now. But if you would come back to him, he'll actually bring you to the ways that you're in fact looking for in the first place. It is that for which modern humanity inwardly longs and strives, yet misses because they do not go to the source. They don't go to the source. And so the, all the answers for the ills of society are found in the authority of Christ, his identity, and his word, but people in society miss it because they don't go back to the creator. And that's why ultimately this scripture ends with in Luke 20, verse 41 and through 44, he says, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so then how is he his son? What Jesus is ultimately saying is like, listen, man, I'm not just from the lineage of David. I was before David. I'm not just David's ancestor, right? I'm not just his, I'm sorry, descendant. I'm also his Lord. And I can't be his Lord unless I'm in fact God who created David, right? Listen, I, I know that my children will far surpass me in everything that I do in life, right? That's the, that's the plan. That's the goal, right? But in no way will I ever call them Lord, because I am their father. (laughs) (laughs) And so in the same way, God's like, listen, I'm telling you, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the authority that you're looking for. And in repentance and faith, your life can be lovingly broken and then rebuilt by the restorer if you come to him today. Allow him to search your heart Allow him to, with his word, show you where you've gone astray. And then in obedience and faith, come back to the architect who has the best plans for your life. In the Lenten season, we do that not just once, but it's in the calendar. We do it over and over and over again so that when we wander, we can go back to the one we love. In Jesus' name, amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for every man and woman in here today. And I thank you that regardless of where they've started, that God, you've given them the ability to come back to you and your word by the Holy Spirit searching each and every one of our hearts. Searching our hearts and allowing us to see the places and the measures and the ways we've gone astray. And God, may we not be like those in the parable who resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit whenever we feel it. But God, may we be those who submit to it, trusting your goodness, trusting your love, trusting your mercy towards us. And though something may seem small to us, Father, we pray that we'd see our sin like you see it. Something that you, Jesus, had to die for, that we could be reconciled to a holy and a righteous God. And help us to come to a place where we're, once again, just as you gave all of your life, we're wholeheartedly devoted to you. God, we're asking that we do that in all of our time, our talent, our treasure, our relationships, our pursuits. God, we want to be an offering to you out of love. A holy offering that is pleasing in your sight. And for anyone in here who says, you know what? I've walked with God, but truth be told, like the hymn says, I've felt my heart wandering. I felt my devotion straying and diminishing. And I thank God in this moment for this Lenten season because I feel the tugging of the Holy Spirit bringing me back to the authority of his word and the life that he has for me. But I need help today. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you first. Anyone out in here, okay? Anyone else? Okay, Father, I just ask that you would help my brothers and sisters and that you would bring them just as you've given your life wholly to them, 
you would give them the ability by the power of your word and the Holy Spirit to break every allegiance that would set itself up before and above you. And God, we pray that in submission, they would have the freedom to walk in the joy of your plan and your goodness and your grace. God, I pray that you would breathe faith into them. Breathe faith into them that things can be different as they make this decision today. And God, that you would cleanse them from sin, but not only cleanse them from sin, but that you would empower them to live and take the steps necessary in obedience to your word to live wholeheartedly for you. And if there's anyone in here who says, you know what, I've never made a decision for Jesus. Jesus has, quite frankly, never been Lord of my life. But I realize that there is going to be a judgment and there's heaven or hell to pay. That there's heaven or hell to pay. But Jesus came and he lived the perfect life I should have lived. Performed signs, wonders, and miracles. And on the cross died the sacrificial death that I should have died. And according to his word, three days later, rose from the dead so that I could not only be forgiven, but have new life in him. And I need to make that commitment to him today. Say, Jesus, you're my Lord. But you've never done that, whether online or in person. If that's you, you can raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Is there anyone who says, okay. Is there anyone who says, I need to make this my moment to give Jesus my entirety, give Jesus my life? Well, Father, I pray for anyone in person or online who needs to do so today. God, may they be born again. May you make them a new creation as they submit to you and put their trust in your good news, your eternal life offered to them by your resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you guys just stand with us in worship?